So you got a whole uh, alpha team now, don't you? But you, but you have a wealth of knowledge that is beneficial to a lot of people, and it we can move the needle. How often do you hear a hunting podcast? We talked about this. People relate to this. Welcome to Kafaru Cast, everyone. It's bright and early on Wednesday morning, and uh, I've got a guy on the other end of the mic that I actually met through a friend of mine that's in the military, and uh, it's it kind of an interesting story. I had talked with him, I don't know, a year or two ago about making some some knives uh, for me and Kafaru, and then my memory sucks, and then about three days ago, I'm scrolling through Instagram, and I'm like, oh, that's a badass tomahawk. I messaged the guy on the other end of the mic said, hey, man, uh, how much can I get that tomahawk for? And you gave me a price. and You're like, hey, we've actually talked before. I'm friends with Lance. And I'm like, I am an idiot. I know exactly who you are now. Uh, so it's Corey Heaton uh, that I got on the mic, man. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's uh, long overdue, I feel. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. It was it was my wife was literally looking at me, Mike, you dumb fuck. Um, like, yeah, I'm not very bright. My memory is not the greatest. And I talked to tons and tons of people. So the moment you said that, I'm like, oh, shit, I know exactly who this is. But how uh, how, how long have you been been doing like the, the custom knife thing? So I would say uh, I've been a student of it longer than I actually have been a practitioner. Uh, and that's just due to the, to the lifestyle, uh, being deployed constantly. Uh, I think we sustained like an eight year period where you were doing a, a six to a 10 month rotation somewhere and then coming home and having about equal time down and half of that is training anyway. So I was just a student, uh, watching a lot of YouTube downrange, uh, reading a, a lot of books, a lot of articles, on those forums and trying to make that decision, whether it was something that I wanted to get into in the first place. And, uh, I'd say about 2017, I'd just come back from, from Chad, uh, did a six months in Chad, uh, like Chad basin. Uh, that was, that was the most studying that I had done, uh, knew exactly what I needed with the equipment and where, where I wanted to go with it. And I just, started doing it for, for fun as an outlet. Um, personally, I'm one of those guys that I always had to come back and get that new gun or that new, that new custom knife after the deployment. And so I came back from that one and I got the the new workshop said, and we went straight to it. Gotcha. So with the, uh, you're, you know, you were in the military for over 20 years, I guess you, I mean, you were in for a minute, uh, right. did you, you retire out? I read, Yep. Uh, so 21 years total, um, it was going to just be 20, but I had the, a last minute PCS right outside of the retirement window. And that was, uh, when I came back to Colorado and ran into a good friend of mine, Ryan Sarter, who I'd known years before. And you guys recognize his name, I'm sure out there in Colorado, uh, he said, please come on this trip with us. Cause I didn't have to, they're like, you technically could just stay here and retire in peace. And I was like, yeah, you're not, you're not leaving me behind on this one. And that's around the same time that I, that I met Lance. Gotcha. So and Lance, um, I've brought him up on the podcast before, um, yeah, I, I, I've hunted with Lance and super fit dude, super, you know, ch- ch- about as chill as you can get. Um, right. So you worked um, kind of as an intel, like like explain what you did, because you started off infantry, as I understand it, then kind of transferred over. Sure. So uh, I knocked out about 11 years of my career as a as an infantryman, as a it was about yeah, 10 years in, I was a squad leader at the time or a platoon sergeant and I got levied to go be a drill sergeant. And that was to me at that time in my, in my career was a death sentence. You know, that was the end of it for me. It was a, a, a low point. Um, but I was able to, you know, in, endure everything that trade threw at me. And that was, 
that was definitely a, a test in resiliency. But I was kind of tired of being not necessarily the smartest guy in the room, but I was, you know, kind of tired of being told to sit down and go color in the corner. And you had like a string of operations that may have happened where you're like, where, where'd this Intel come from? Like who, what's really going on behind the curtain. And I, I kind of got a drive to maybe get involved and be a part of that and know more about what's going on and actually be able to, to affect it and quit sending guys up and down the road, you know, movement to IED and, you know, try to, try to find a, a better way for the survivability of my guys. And just, that was my motivation. So from there, I, I kind of looked at some of these Intel jobs and found one that was suitable. And I think that we'll just kind of be careful about, uh, about the conversation on that one. But I'm, what I ended up as a direct support enabler for special operations forces, um, providing a service in the, in the targeting cycle for those guys. Gotcha. So like when you, um, I, that sounds like quite the transition over from, you know, basically, you know, a, a grunt more or less was it much of, uh, <laughs> I mean, what did it, were you doing still kind of the same? I mean, I know what you did, but like for the listeners, um, the standard, uh, grunt, um, routine is fairly, um, Simple, I guess, really, like you guys train all the time, run, ruck. Um, how much changed? I mean, going from, you know, keeping drunk soldiers in line and, you know, forming, you know, like setting up training and shit like that to 10 years in transitioning over. Was it like a holy shit, this is way different or it was pretty smooth? Yeah, well, absolutely. It was rough, especially that my last assignment as an infantry guy, I was in the in the in the the army's training command essentially. And it was just staff death by PowerPoint, uh, coordinations and logistics. Just, I was a one man show running an, an S three shop, which is just the brain of, you know, the military unit. And I went from kind of a active infantry life deployments and then to a sedentary staff position. And it was, it was like acid in my mouth. I just, it wasn't me at all. Um, so it was even harder for me to decide to, to risk that and get away from that infantry world and, and branch out into, into that Intel side, especially because the, the demographic of people and, and the intelligence level is definitely different. So coming into that, they, they look at a guy who's 10 years on the line as a grunt and they're like, well, i you know, you're, you're the dumbest guy here now. <laughs> but the, the first step in that was I, I had to go to language school and they're like, well, we're hurting really bad for Persian Farsi linguists right now. So that's what you're going to be. And yeah, my, my D lab score, you know, definitely got a, got a waiver on that one. And that's the test that determines which language they, they want to try to teach you basically a test that tells how good you would be at speaking a language and it's all it's gibberish and in, in, in code and whatnot. And you just kind of decipher it. So anyways, they waved me because I'm dumb. So hold on one sec, <laughs> just cause I forget. Um, I speak some of the language. Um, D lab is, I think like is defense language, uh, aptitude. Ab battery or is Aptitude that right? battery. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. And then Sorry, uh, I try to, Watch the acronyms here. Yeah, no, it's no, uh, no big deal. And then uh, another one, just you know, for people uh, listening in, Tradoc is a is a like a, I always call it a training detachment, but it's a training and doctrine command. I think is the technical um, acronym. Am I fucked up, or is that am I remembering that correct? correct. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that that command, uh, anything that's schoolhouse related across the the army, whether it's basic training or uh, professional development schools that that will fall under under TRADOC, and it's very by the book. It, that's where you're gonna. That's your everyday haircut guy stuff, and yeah, that it's just not a happy place for a guy who's who's a grunt at heart. 
Yeah. No, I, I get that. So, so you, you were, you know, 10 years, uh, living the grunt life transitioned over and then they waived your, 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 (laughs) I guess your, your intelligence level. They said, fuck it. You're going anyway. Like how, how far off are you uh, from making it? Oh man. I, I think they, they waived me like 20 points just because they needed to fill that, that, that requirement. And I think to them, they're just like, well, this guy is going to wash out at some point. They'll just, we'll just reduce your language level as you go. So if you make it, you make it, if not, you don't. So, uh, yeah, they sent me out to, uh, to Monterey, California to go to a language school. Uh, that was, that was the real eye opener of that. You know, there's two different armies. There's probably more than two different armies, but the army that I was in is not the same army that these people were in. Uh, in that being just the the brand new kids coming out of basic training, going straight into to a language school, and it's it's a military academy environment. And they see, you know, the cadre would see me and be like, "Okay, guess what? You're going to do my job for me now, and you're going to be responsible for all these kids in your class." <laughs> And these kids are, some of them are brilliant. Yeah, they should have, they should have been at MIT, not, not in the army, but that was where I really started to, there weren't the same young guys I was leading in the infantry. These were, these were like maybe the first wave of millennials that I was seeing in the army. And that was, that was definitely trying to close that, that age gap and, and learn how to communicate with these people. Um, but while I while I was there, uh, obviously that Persian Farsi didn't didn't pan out for this guy. So I became a French linguist, and I was a I was a rock star of a French linguist. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> so, how long were you? On, Go ahead. I was just say that unfortunately that that kind of chained me to to Africa for quite a bit. Um, but we can, we can get into that moving forward. No, that's what I was going to say. So I, how long before they ship your ass to Africa because French and, and again, I'm not, I'm not in the thick of things, right? I just, you know, friends and, and different acquaintances, the theaters they're in. I'm like, well, fuck you had to have gone to Africa if you <laughs> were speaking French. That's right. So, um, right. How, how long were you in linguist school? And then, and then how long before that were you mm. shipped out? Like where you were like on sure. the ground using your training? Sure. So the, uh, the, the total time out, out in California language school was, uh, just under two years. And that's because there was a, there was a big gap between, you know, four, four or five months into Persian and then another six months waiting to start French. So, you know, they, they rode me hard and put me up wet, worked me as, you know, an additional cadre. And, but I mean, it was a, it was one of those time periods where, uh, I was just focused on the, on the end state. So went into autopilot, got through it. Um, and then my first assignment after language school was, uh, out in, in Colorado in 10th group. So I show up, you know, brand new linguist, brand new to the Intel community, but I'm already like a senior guy and I don't know shit. So, and 90% of my job is, is technical more than it even is language. So the language really didn't necessarily need to be a requirement because there's, you know, interpreters everywhere that we were going. So quick, fast, in a hurry, I had to, had to learn everything I could about communications and, uh, antenna building and, you know, learning how to manage power and, and do these things in a, in an austere environment, not somewhere that you have a a logistical chain that can send you what you need or, um, is everything's a phone call away. My first deployment in that role with a special forces team was, uh, hunting for this Joe Coney guy. If you remember him. Mm -hmm. So that was like 2013. Mm -hmm. So we go to central African Republic and, um, you know, we're on a camp in the middle of nowhere. It's, you know, it's a jungle the size of Texas and 
you know, you got a, you got a team of like 30 dudes out there on a hilltop, basically hunting these rebels. And that, that was my first, you know, don't fuck it up. Oh, I lost you for a sec. That was your first don't fuck it up. Yep. All right. I got you back. Yeah. So I heard, uh, so that was your first don't fuck it up. (laughs) And then I lost you. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, basically trying to, trying to locate these, these needles in a stack of needles. And at the, at the end of that deployment, you know, we, we were extremely successful and we're able to, to move the ball forward quite a bit on that, on that situation. And, you know, obviously now it's something that's been forgotten about, but, um, there for, for a good period of almost, you know, five or six years, there was a, a lot of, a lot of trips into a lot of difficult places, uh, trying to, to crack that nut. And I was fortunate enough to be, you know, on the first lift in there to figure out how to do it. And also fortunate that the, in, the intelligence requirements that were needed, you know, really did just depend solely on me, this brand new guy that didn't know fuck all. And now all of a sudden, um, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the VTC with, with the general wanting to know like what I need. And it was not, it was an eye opener for sure. And then Joe Coney and I'm going off of memory here. And that was obviously over a decade ago or close to it. He led the LRA, right? right? The Lord's resistance army and basically just wreak fucking havoc in Uganda. Is that right? Right. So (laughs) he, his, his group was, uh, was a separatist from, from you, uh, Uganda. And he was from a remote portion of, of Uganda, but also, um, well, I think even before South Sudan was even declared a country when it was just Sudan, um, yeah, there's this tri-border area there of South Sudan, Uganda and Central African Republic, but also you've got the Congo right there. So like the, the armpit of Africa, like the literal heart of darkness, you couldn't find a darker place on that map. And we're, we're just living our our best life. And just imagine, you know, what happens when you take a special, two special forces teams and a bunch of, a bunch of Intel guys and a bunch of other shady characters and contractors. And you say, go get this guy. And there's really no start point. You just got to figure it out. You got to figure out how to find these people and look for, um, just looking for indicators that are going to give you, uh, uh, the advantage over them or give you an idea where maybe you should move your pieces on the board in order to, to get a kinetic end state. Yeah. Gotcha. So, not to so that's probably the most intel guy answer I could have given you, I guess. No, no, that's good. So, um, n- not to skip around too much. First ten infantry, the next ten, or the first three of your next ten out of your league ish, like you're learning what the fuck you're gonna do, and then fairly smooth the last seven or eight. Once you got the hang of things, then like um, right, because uh, as I understand it, with a few of our mutual friends, you were kind of you know, I don't say the guy, but more or less became a person people could depend on. Um, and one of the reasons was your background being on the ground, you were known as dependable and also looked at things in a different perspective, maybe because you were on boots on the ground for a decade. Um, am I pulling that out of my ass? That's what I had gathered from talking to different individuals. I mean, that's, 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 that's pretty, that's pretty accurate. So I never really felt like I was the guy. Um, but I guess that goes into the imposter syndrome plague that I think sweeps most guys that are in, uh, you know, high op tempo positions where you might say, well, what the hell am I even doing here? Look at these guys. So it, that drive every day to, to keep your, you, the only thing you have of any value in those, in those organizations is your reputation. Because if you screw that reputation up one time, you're never going to get another mission. You're never going to, you'll be sent off to answer phones or, 
you know, pull guard on ISR feed or something like something, something somewhere that you just don't want. Right. Yeah. So the pressure is, is always there to perform and you got to understand like from that in the Intel detachment, say that's in that special operations unit, they, you're, you're going to get a mix of guys. You're going to get a lot of guys who are prior infantry or, you know, at least some, some sort of regular army background. And then, you know, now they're leading these guys, but you're also got to remember that you also have maybe two or three 21 or 22 year old guys that are under you as well. And then, you know, those kids, they see the, they see the green berets walking around and that's, they instantly are like, okay, well, I'm just, I want to be like that guy. I don't really care what you have to say because you're not as cool as, so there's like a lot of personality management and stuff behind the scenes. And you have to, you'd have to, I would personally assign every kid to a team throughout the whole unit. Like I would pick which team it was and I would go and talk to those team sergeants and, and sometimes they'd be like, Oh, I want this kid I worked with in the past or whatever, but I had to match those personalities up and, and find the right guy for the job. Uh, and I think that I was successful in that above everything else. I put the right guy at the right place and made sure that that guy was going to perform to task exactly like that, that, ODA wanted him to. And that I think is what really built that, that, uh, that groundwork for me. No, that makes sense. And, uh, for people wondering, uh, what the fuck he's talking about. So, uh, and, and I, in ISR, uh, for the, the last, um, acronym. So that's intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. And then an ODA, for lack of a better, like that, what everybody would know that as is is special forces or green beret, but ODA is operational detachment alpha. Is that correct? Yeah, ODA operational. And yep. the um, not that you're probably like, what the fuck, Aaron? This is simple, but mo- you know, people listening in may not know that. So, um, the the ODA is a, a special forces green beret, and then you basically had to, an intel guy from your team to marry up with whatever specific ODA teams where everybody got along more. Right. Yep. So that sounds across an entire knowing uh, personality issues. That's (laughs) uh, well, I would usually get to know right away, which I I would get to know the, the guys pretty, pretty quickly and determine, you know, who, who I wasn't going to send with anybody. You know, you, you'd send the herd right away. Yeah. And then you, you're like, well, shit, I've literally got five guys and I need to fill six holes. So, I mean, that, that means I'm throwing myself in there too. Yeah. And so I would, I would cut these guys loose. I would put my guys in the care of a team of green berets and say, you know, go do great things. And then I would jump on and I would do the exact same job that those young guys were doing. And at the same time, I would also, you know, manage what they were doing from afar and, and dealing with the headshed and, and crushing problems and working with, with the ODA that you're attached to, you are integrated instantly into the team. You will assist somebody or multiple people in their additional duties. Uh, you'll, you'll cross train under the medic. You'll be an additional body, you know, for the medic if needed, or you'll be, an additional rifle on a certain wall somewhere for the, for the, for the weapon sergeant. And you'll also be right there writing, uh, the basically your, your concepts of, of the operation for your, for your planning, you'll be assisting the leadership. You're everywhere. So there's, there's a, there's a lot of places that you can screw up and ruin that reputation that you've been trying to build. And uh, that was, that was always the biggest hurdle is just, you, you you screw up one time. It's like, that could be it. And a lot of times those younger guys, you know, they, they got a free pass unless they, they shot a hole through like the floor of a helicopter and they got sent home. Most of the time, you know, they were, they'd be mentored on the spot. Gotcha. No, that makes, uh, that makes sense. So you had that going on and then you, you retire, um, and were, when you retired, were you like, you know, I can't wait to build custom knives? Did you retire? And be like, what the fuck am I going to do now? Um, or was it a little bit of all of the above? Right. So, um, 
Well, I would say that we probably um, look at that last deployment there out of out of tenth group, and and that's uh, you know that that was one, uh, maybe the second to last soft rotation uh, where we were conducting operations still in Afghanistan. Uh, maybe I think second to last there. So 2019, and it was it was a really kinetic year for us. Um, that was a big one. And coming off of that, knowing that I was coming out of that environment for like six months of the most sustained combat that I'd seen in my entire career in in one time. Uh, to hey, now now you're you're ready to just get out. You're gonna walk now. <clears throat> so. I started that the the transition, you know, the the mandatory classes and <clears throat> what they called it like a cap. I forget what the what it even stood for, but just teaching you how to how to do a job application and you know how to do interviews and just very very dry. And coming from that soft intel side, it's like, well, this is a no brainer. I'm going to work for for an agency somewhere doing something. And that was that was the plan, and that takes us to I think the first time we we spoke. There is um, I don't know Lance might have said something about me. I'm not quite sure how you how you got turned on to me in the first place. But at that point in time when we first started talking, I was waiting for a trip back to Afghanistan as a as a contractor. Um, and we were also what we were probably ten months into life after COVID. So Colorado was looking a certain kind of way. And I was, the plan had just been to go overseas plus up the workshop. Cause at this point, the knife making had really just been, I'm making them from my friends in, in the unit. At, at that point, I think guys who were in third group with me or in 10th group were like my, my base. Those were, my repeat customers and, you know, I was primarily catering to, to like the team guys. <clears throat> but the idea was, yeah, I would continue to, to make knives on the side just as a, just for the enjoyment of the, of the hobby and learning the craft. Um, but, you know, we spoke and then I uh, just said, you know what, maybe I don't feel like doing the same thing anymore and, and going back overseas and you know, maybe it's time to, to, to break that mold a little bit and just go for it. Cause there's a lot of veteran makers out there that are, you know, very inspiring in what they're doing and how, how popular they are. <clears throat> so a big, big motivation seeing like Andy Arabito kicking ass doing what he was doing. I mean, I watched that from, you know, from the moment that his name got out there and then just exploded overnight, but just seeing that it was possible to do something like that. So the guys don't realize, you know, financially what's in, involved in, in setting up a shop and, you know, you're doing like 90% of the work. And so seeing that kind of, kind of nudged me to just go for it. And, uh, but I've been so busy specifically doing custom pieces for the guys in the units because they would say, Hey, this guy's leaving, um, in 30 days, we want to get them something badass. Can you do it? And most custom makers, you're looking at, you know, a variety of, of wait times just to get in the books, right? So it could be an average of three to six months sometimes, or, or even longer, or maybe you're just not even going to get one from, from a certain maker. So that was like the motivation to say, well, I do have guys here who like what I do and they're testing the shit out of it for me. Uh, if, if my shit's messed up, I'm going to hear about it. So that was kind of like the, those are like the bumpers there that kept me going on. Okay. I'm just going to focus on making the best blade possible that, that I can for my customer base, which was mostly the green berets. Gotcha. And I think with Lance, um, and then there's actually, there was a couple other guys that I'd, you know what? I'm not going to mention their names because they didn't give me permission. But other dudes that knew knew of you or re had recommended you since I talked to, you know, Lance. Um, you know, and and a, you know, a lot of this is just through you know bow hunting or, you know, somebody right, knew yeah. me that knew me that 
that recommended, Hey, Aaron knows gear. And then they ask me and whether that was for a deployment, honestly, or training mm-hmm. or hunting. Right. I mean, they all kind of right. coincide with each other, right? If you're going to go live in the woods and it sucks, you need good gear. And so sometimes I would meet some of these guys, um, just from gear, like, Hey, um, you know, uh, this is the next, you know, theater I'm heading into and I need this. What do you think is the best? I don't know that they always listen to me. Well, some of that shit is knives, right? Like you, you need a specific knife for, you know, hunting, backpack hunting. You need a specific knife. When I say that, meaning you use one knife for everything, but it is handy having a few, right? Like my lightweight backpack sure. knife is going to be different than something that I have in the truck for a little bit more beefy use. Um, so with all that being said, I've become a bit of a knife collector and, and um, I was, I think I was getting ready to get some for Kafaru. Um, to order a few like very limited kind of custom knives for, you know, friends of yep. Kafaru. And I was just shooting the shit with with Lance. I talked to him like once a year uh, to make sure we're both alive. And he was like, hey, man, yep. you need to talk to my buddy, Corey. Um, he m- builds badass, you know, knives. Good dude. Um, you know, just retired. And that that's where I think that, um, you know, that recommendation to get a hold of you had come from. Because, um, you All know, right, like, yeah. Like anything, um, you know, the, the skill set that like you guys have or or seals, whether it's on the white side or, um, you know, what, anyway, you guys still don't have enough time to test every piece of gear known to man. So you guys may have high levels of weapon testing or, you know, whatever it is, but there's going to be other things like whether it be boots or, or sleeping pads or whatever that... I'll get to test out more. So, you know, just shooting the shit with you. When I say you guys, like that community, mm-hmm. well, there's some things I don't have as much. Um, like, you know, I don't fucking use a tomahawk, right? And as everyone, of, I mean, every, that's like the cool thing to have now is a tomahawk. Um, and then the book right. uh, recently uh, written, um, well, it's not his real name, but whatever. Um w- w- with all the different books that have been written, whether they're nonfiction or fiction, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of SEALs that have written different books. And, you know, the next thing you know, there's like guys on, uh, you know, with tomahawks on their back constantly. And that became a huge thing. Would you agree (laughs) that the tomahawk was kind of trending now? (laughs) Right. So, well, I personally, I, I believe that tomahawk is, you know, that it's quintessentially uh, an American idea, even though those blades, those, those heads were traded to, to, to first generation peoples, you know, for, for fur and whatnot, they were getting these ax heads from the French and, you know, the tomahawk evolved as something that was European um, and replaced some more, more, you know, your primitive war clubs and, and native uh, style hawks. So, I think that it, it it ties into the very beginning of 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 our history as as Americans, and I think that in it in it stands ubiquitous with the idea of the Minutemen and you know, the Revolution, and you know you get where that that American badass idea comes from, right? So what's better than you know something meant to hack people up? <laughs> so the tomahawk is it. It's one of those things that you don't really, you may never need one, but if you have one, you're going to, you're going to covet that thing. Uh, I don't do a, a ton of tomahawks. I really, you're in a very exclusive club, I guess, but there, I do have some floating around throughout the regiment and I'm, I'm glad that they are. And I, and I get a lot of great feedback too. Um, but that the tomahawk is, is it, it seems to be pretty popular. So I'm going to look at maybe uh, making them more, more available or more often. Well, I, th- I think the um, it's, I think you're right. It's more, maybe it makes people feel badass because obviously I just ordered a Tomahawk from you, which I probably don't need. Um, but, you know, occasionally yeah. it will come out of the back. I keep it um, in my truck and uh, right. you know, I, right. I can't say I pulled it out to go hack some dude's head off. I've just pulled it out occasionally to like split a pelvis open, you know, on an animal or right, whatever. Yep, exactly. Uh, and it makes me feel tougher. And that's important um, if you need that in your life. So it yep. does look badass. Um, and let's Absolutely. face it. And now, uh, go ahead. 
Go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if anybody's giving you shit in a parking lot and you hop out of your vehicle with a tomahawk, it does make a very direct and, and specific stance on, on life where like, oh, that dude's got a fucking yeah, tomahawk. It does. Yeah. <laughs> it does. And now, and I, and I can say that I, I, I have a little, I have some tomahawk history in, in my, in my family lineage. I had a, a I guess a, a seventh great grandfather who was uh, tomahawk to death in Western Massachusetts. Uh, that's uh, yeah. He, uh, he was actually shot and tomahawked and left for dead. And, but he, he, he lived several hours and died in the night, but that's definitely um, a personal connection to, to the spirit of the tomahawk, I guess. And then I do, I do know, I have friends personally who were, who served in, in the regiment that have used tomahawks in, you know, hand-to-hand situations. And that in itself is, is pretty badass. No, for, for sure. Well, the other thing, like you said, the tomahawk, I, everybody needs a knife. You know, not everybody's going to be like, man, I got to order a tomahawk today. So knives are just a little bit more user, you know, user friendly. But you make, um, you know, some pretty badass knives. So what all like steel? I know, um, looks like you, you fuck around with Damascus, but like, what's kind of your tried and true top two or three, four blades. And then what material do you kind of focus on? Sure. So, um, just in the, in the learning process, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat and you can make a knife a lot of different ways with a variety of different tools at your disposal. Um, but for me, honestly, I think there was a mystique involved with the with the uh, the hand forging uh, of the steel. Um, I mean, I, you see that metaphor everywhere. Uh, you know, iron forges iron, and you're going to hear every catchphrase. You know, on social media, something's going to refer to to forging somebody into something or forging something. You know, of higher value than what it was when it started, um, and Honestly, it's just, it, it has a therapeutic aspect as well. And, you know, like, like we talked about a little earlier with like the traumatic brain injuries and just a lot of, a lot of guys have, you know, focus issues. And I notice a lot of other vets as well that, that get into the knife making. And, and I think it's maybe because there's that defined process of start to finish. So for me, that start, usually it starts on the anvil with a, with a piece of steel and I, and I work mostly with uh, high carbon steels that are more suitable for foraging. Um, you know, there's, there's a plethora of them out there and, you know, I've narrowed down a few that I, I specifically like to use because I've kind of gotten uh, a feel for the heat treat. And that's really what, what I, I personally feel like when it comes down to the components of the knife, you've got your steel and your handle and, and your method of carry, you know, your sheath, but that that real money that's in that blade, what's really driving um, that that blade's quality and purpose is going to be in in that heat treat and how it, how it was heat treated. Um, so that's kind of where I put myself now. I, I prefer to make those hand forged blades. Now I I do some of the stock removal knives as well. Usually that's for things like CQB daggers or team knives where I need to you know, pump out a larger quantity in a shorter amount of time. Um, and even still, a lot of the times I find myself forging on those as well to kind of move the steel the way I need it to, for a handle to look a certain way or whatever. So there's, there's a very personal aspect involved with the blades that I make. Um, and then obviously the style, right? Um, you kind of like that, that classic American knife thing. You could go back along with the tomahawk and trace those, those long hunter knives and, you know, those frontier knives that were actually, you know, used and popular in the era and look at how the knives evolved through, you know, through our history in the country. And I like to kind of keep that aspect involved there. Sort of that like blade Americana is what we're starting to call it, where, you know, it's an American knife when you see it, no matter where you see it in the world. Right. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. So when you're talking about, um, you know, like, like forging, so, you know, being a little bit of a, a knife junkie, um, and, and, uh, and it, it 
custom knives that are actually forged, and, and this is coming from a layman, right? I know just enough, like, I may be a knife junkie, but I'm not out there beating the shit out of uh, steel and heating it up to forge. I just have watched it mm-hmm. being done. So when you talk about more right. uh, mass produced, when I say mass, right, if I said, hey, um, Corey, I want to order, uh, I don't know, whatever, 15 uh, blades, uh, and I want them, I don't know, S35 VN or some shit, right? And I, but I want custom <clears throat> handles. That is a semi, right. what I would call a semi custom knife because you are ordering blanks. And that's what I would give right. to friends. I'm trying to put things into context, I guess you could say, for people listening in. That's what I'm going to give to friends, give to, you know, friends of Kafaro or whatever. When I call Corey um, and say, I need to build you a complete custom, here's the deer antler I want you to use. It came from an animal my friend shot. That knife, one, mm-hmm. is going to be expensive as fuck. It's going to take you a shit ton of time to build it. But that's the kind of knife that is is passed down from father to son to son to son, you know, to, to grandson, mm-hmm. like on and on and on. That 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 it's it's that is a true custom knife because you you literally built that from the ground up. You didn't order a blank. So explain that and kind of mm-hmm. your semi-customs and what you put into those and then the true forging, you know, what you would want to order for, let's say, your son as a graduation present or something like that. Like, explain right. those differences. Sure. So, and and that's a, a really good point is, and, and it kind of goes into why I prefer the style and those frontier knives that I, that I prefer. And I have to say, first of all, is that, you know, almost everybody that's going to hear this, you probably have a custom knife maker somewhere within a hundred mile radius. So you don't have to buy my stuff, but you should support your local maker or at least go have a conversation with them because they're going to be, you know, very hands-on, very helpful. And that's what I try to do. Everybody who messages me, you know, we have that conversation, you know, what, what is it that you're looking for? What are you actually going to use it for? Um, you know, I get guys that draw, like mall ninja stuff on napkins and take a photo and they're like, can you make this? And I was like, man, there's a lot going on there. Let's, well, let's talk about it a little bit. And then by the end of the conversation, you know, they're, they're walking out of there with, with an heirloom quality blade that, you know, maybe they didn't get grandpa's knife. Maybe grandpa wasn't a hunter. Maybe, maybe he didn't have a knife. Maybe he was, you know, worked in an office. So you didn't get that granddad's knife, right? Well, now you can buy one that looks like granddad's knife. And then you can pass it on and your kids, you know, they'll fight over who gets it and maybe your grandkids will. So that's kind of the selling point for me is, you know, let's, let's make you something that your that your kids are going to fight over. And at the same time, as you're getting that classic look, you're going to get modern, modern quality. You're going to know that, 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 that heat treat was, was properly done. So it may look like a 180 year old knife, but you're going to be able to go and beat it up and, you know, do bushcraft videos in your backyard or whatever. And you're, and you're not going to break this thing. It, you know, they're hand, hand built to, to be beat on, not necessarily just to look at. So when someone reaches out and they say, uh, here's some antler, you know, off a shed that I found on a particular hunt or whatever. And they, and they hand that over to me. It's, it's kind of a no brainer that there's going to be a memory attached to this blade. Right. Yeah, and that you did a better job than I, I was kind of hacking that up. But that when you when you have a true custom knife, you know, built like you said, uh, the kind of kids you're, you know, the kind of knife your your kids are going to fight over, or you know, when you when you give um, a custom true custom knife to someone that was not is not coming from a blank, and there's nothing wrong with those either. Like I don't, I don't I'm not. No, not not at all. No, I'm not shitting on those, and I use them all the time because, you know, quite honestly. If, if I have a, a knife that, that let's say the company gets me like a, you know, I'm hard to shop for cause I get all kinds of shit for free. Right. That there was, right. there yep. was thought that went into that. There was your hard work, your background, my support or their support of you. And you know, you had something that has time, effort, thought and built from the ground up. Um, and it means something more to me than a knife built from a blank not to say knives built from a blank aren't badass there's some fucking badass knives like that and there's work that go into those as well but you think poor Corey hammering on a piece of fucking steel out in his yard right in his in his shed in comparison there's a just more 
there's a lot going on with a true forged knife and it's quite amazing watching sure. them get built for me it's it's like watching a dog work it's like wow that was a railroad right. tie or not a railroad tie that was a leaf spring at one time or whatever the fuck you start with but you know what i mean sure yep and and that's just one thing i want to emphasize on is not to shit on anybody's craft in any particular method um you know stock removal blades are awesome uh and again it's coming down to you know the heat treat and how 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 are these blades prepared i mean uh you can go and and get a decent knife that's going to last you your entire life and you can get it for probably 79 bucks at walmart but you know, that that's for that guy uh, that's for the guy that wants that okay but when when you are talking about attaching some sort of uh uh history or you know, it doesn't have to be old to, to have that sentiment to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I, uh, I get it. And definitely I am hopefully not shitting on anyone's builds, right? Like I'm not like blank. No, sure. But knives are cool. They're just different. Yeah. You know how the interwebs are that the, they're, oh, they're going to blow up over it. So yeah, ah, I mean, I you might as well, yeah, Might I mean. as well be talking about boots <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, and I, I think that the way that's why I tried to put it into perspective, like um, having a custom built knife that that it starts from a blank is not bad. There's still work that goes into that. And there's different levels, yep. right? You have like the the standard, sure. I don't know, whatever, bench made, like good knives, right? Like there's different knives that you right. can buy, you know, SOG, there's a bunch of fucking millions of companies. Then you have a little bit more yep. custom where... The guy has it of a blank. You can pick the handle, whether it be, you know, sheep horn, micarta or whatever. And then there's the next yep. level up. There's also a substantial price difference in those three levels. Like talk about that a little bit. Sure. Like, what do your knives cost? Sure. What do your, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. So, uh, well, and that's another one that's tricky because uh, any, you can look at any maker out there. Uh, you know, I could list you 10 of them, but I won't. And you're going to say, wow, well, I mean, I can compare these, all these blades side by side and just see that the, the price range goes all over the place. Right. And then some of that is, well, how much as a maker, how much do you feel that that blade is worth? Like what's, uh, what's respectable, like what, what's out of touch. Um, a lot of, a lot of knives out there right now, um, you know, they're, they're being made and sold and then they're going straight to a secondary market with, you know, where, where they're worth three times as much. Um, and it, and it's really about, you know, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's somebody saying, I'm willing to pay you $1,600 for something that I could have just bought for 400 because it's hard to get. And that's, it's, that's like a whole nother micro economy that these makers are working with. And, when, when you see that stuff, you're like, it, it motivates you to, um, not necessarily compete, but that's the other thing I have to say, like the knife making community, like the greatest dudes, you know, like, I, you could message probably any maker out there and just ask a knife question and they're going to, they're going to work with you and they're going to talk to you. I get guys that hit me up all the time asking me about like what folder to buy. And I'm just like, I don't even carry a folder, man. <laughs> but like, these are the type of things maybe you should look for. But when it comes to like my blade and, and the way I drive the price, obviously if it's, if it's going to be more time consuming, it, it's going to be more because that's a, it's a labor of love in there. Um, a lot of times like the, the, the tomahawk for me, you know, it takes a little bit longer to forge it. It's a little trickier. And that's, that's something I'll say with the hawks is like, I'm, I'm forging full tang tomahawks. This isn't just like the head with a, with a wooden handle. And when you, when I say full tang, you know, it means, you know, the whole blade profile is, is one piece that flows through the handle. Um, there, there's just a lot of, of nuance in, in getting these things right when you're using the hammer and you're using a forge, uh, where with like the stock removal aspect, it would be a lot easier. Um, you could have a water jet cut you out a hundred of these things and you just have them on hand. And when someone orders one, then, you know, your custom aspect really comes into that handle and then the finish work. So maybe as a, as a maker that, that emphasis is more on the, on the, on the final pro, 
uh, product versus just specifically on like the steel. So me personally for a hand forged blade, um, you're looking at a window between three to $400, um, with probably, uh, an eight week lead time, depending. I mean, obviously like the holidays are a bigger time for me. Um, trying to clear my custom books right now. And then, you know, moving forward, I think for next year, we're going to do more like controlled drops, monthly drops instead of just uh, the custom book stuff, because I'm getting a lot more demand. Um, I can make a bunch of custom knives. They're all going to be unique and individual, but they're not specifically made for one guy. Uh, you might be able to look at it and say, well, that one's, that one will work for me. I like the way that one looks or whatever. Gotcha. No, that makes, that makes sense. So, um, I don't want to keep you on. Oh, and then go ahead. Oh, you're fine. I was just wanted to add to that. Cause you had mentioned Damascus, obviously like the, and that's a big one that guys are going to probably ask is, you know, well, if I want Damascus or whatever, it's going to, um, how much more is that going to be in it? And the, the answer to that is really just like, it depends on what you want. It depends on the style of Damascus that you want. And it's going to add to that lead time. But I think that I've never had anybody come back and was like disappointed with what they paid or uh, how long they waited. Man, I lost you for a sec. I heard you say, yeah. or how yeah. long they waited. Right. Yeah. That was, uh, that was the last thing I said there. Okay. Um, yeah, you're, you're so, in and, it seems like you're in and out sometimes, but you, I think you're good. Gotcha. So w- with, it's, you know, as far as like the, you know, what they got, how long they waited, what, what, the, what is the kind of a standard, because I kind of want to button all this up in the end so people know where to go, um, meaning how to get to your page and your website if you've got one. Standard wait mm-hmm. times for a custom, like kind of list that off. Where can they find you? What are they looking at? Uh, timeline and, uh, you know, bandwidth wise and all that kind of stuff. Sure. So um, because because I am kind of coming out of a custom to a very niche group of people. Um, I mean, there's very, very few non-military guys with my stuff. There's a, some outfitters and a lot of hunters out west that, uh, that I've taken care of. But uh for the most part, I, I keep it very personal interaction. You can send me a DM on Instagram and that's at Corey Heaton, Bladesmith. Um, we're going to launch a website. We use that as a way to control those future drops where you'll see like a monthly drop versus just the occasional piece popping up and, you know, trying to, trying to stay in that, uh, that personal interaction though. You know, I don't, I don't want ever to be, where someone orders a knife, but they didn't actually speak to me. Right. If that makes sense. And that's just because there is a lot involved in making, um, well, I say a lot, it just depends on the style of knife. Um, Right now, you know, you could order something and probably have it by the end of January because I've cleared my books. But after this, who knows, my books may be, you know, six months full. We'll see. Gotcha. And then price wise, obviously I'm sure it's all across the board, but let's say if people go to your, uh, you know, your Instagram page, which I'll just, it's Corey K O R E Y underscore Heaton H E A T O N underscore bladesmith. Uh, the first knife you have pinned is kind of what I would consider of a frontiersman type of a knife, antler handle, Mm -hmm. um, so that like that knife, what would that cost roughly? Um, I think is that one that's just the antler, uh, or does that one have the stacked leather? I can't Stack. really look at it's the, got the Instagram right now, but it's got the stacked okay. leather. Okay, right. So the, the Skagel style, the the William Skagel, that's the the maker that kind of made that style popular. He's responsible for getting uh, Randall started. Uh, so there's some history there to that, and that's maybe the maybe the early lineage of of custom knives actually was that style with those uh, stacked handles, so spacers of different materials. Um, those average are, are starting depending on size around uh, $350, uh, and then they just go up, obviously, um, and a lot of that is just tied into the amount of time that it takes to get them to 
to really feel great and to to leave the shop, you know, as close as you know perfection as I can because I do want that to be a lasting, you know, memory at the same time that they know that that amount of detail went into it. Gotcha. So the easiest way for somebody to order then, like if they like they listen to the podcast, <clears throat> just go, go where to get a hold of you. Yep. Uh, so at this time, it's just going to go straight through that, that Instagram profile, shoot me a DM, and we'll open up a line of communication from there. Um, you know, I'm fully retired and disabled veteran, so I'm always I'm always available. And you could hit me at one in the morning, you're probably going to get, you know, my full attention. So... But again, like I said, we are going to launch a, a website and they'll be able to you know, send an email or, or whatever and inquire through there. But for the time being, I kind of I like to keep it personal. I think that's a big part of what I'm trying to do here. And with the knives I'm trying to create is to make it as, as personal an experience for the for the purchaser as possible. Gotcha. Well, cool. Um, well, man, uh, before we hop off, is there anything else you kind of want to get out to the world while you're on the, while you're on the podcast? Well, just looking here and see. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that, that, I think we, we covered the high points, you know, uh, you know, I was thinking before we, we started talking, um, I was like, well, maybe if we, if we didn't have anything to talk about, I would talk about, uh, my, the, the most expensive piece of Kefaru gear that I ever had to, to pay for. <laughs> what was yeah. that? If you, well, so if you if you remember, you sent a a box of bags to Afghanistan I, for I, Lance. I didn't. I didn't send shit. But yeah, I remember someone asking me if I would do that, and and I remember that going to Lance. <laughs> right. So, so uh, yeah, a, a a big box of assorted Kafaru bags showed up. You know, nice stuff. You know, every everything in the lineup. And in a, in a classic Lance fashion, you know, everybody could get a bag, but you had to, you had to do the 300 workout and then it was going to be order of merit based on your time for the bag that you would get. Right. That sounds horrible. So <laughs> you're, you're in, so you're in, the, you know, in Afghanistan summertime, and and Lance is like, you know, it, it is a team building thing too. It's just to like kind of get like some esprit de corps going and some some competitiveness. But you know, so everybody got to got to finger all the bags and play with them, and you could see guys like falling in love with their bag. And there was, uh, the, I I mean, I still have this thing hanging out in the garage, but <laughs> I would say that was the most expensive price I've ever paid for a piece of gear ever was to do that three hundred workout for Lance and the Afghan son to earn this, this, uh, this pack. So I just thought that was a kind of, kind of a funny little nuance there considering the first Kafaru bag I bought was like 2004 <laughs> way back. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that, that, that bag as well, you know, bomb proof back in 04 was a Marauder, I think it was, you know, so just, just a touch on that Kafaru years of, of been a big deal in, in in the military for a lot of guys too that it goes maybe unnoticed i think yeah i i try not to pump that i don't know it's just i i mean we we sell to um all all kinds of um people militaries all over the world and and you know and we do work with um all kind, you know, whether it be the Navy or, or Marines or the army or what, you know, whatever. And we deal a lot with attack peas. And the thing is, I just, I don't mind talking conversations like this and I don't, you know what I mean? I, I just hate flying the flag of where everything Kafari right. does is, oh, and I saw another company do it. Oh, you know, Navy SEALs want to wear our shit. And it's like, really, man, right. It's a fucking bullshit move. Yep. Like, don't do that. You know, like I just am happy you guys are using it, but we don't really ever use it for a marketing campaign. And it's kind of something I've wanted to, you know, stick with. Like, I, I'm glad you guys like it, but I don't want to make a mm -hmm. fucking Instagram post that says, Hey, we just sent a crate of shit to some fob. Yeah. Uh, please love us. You know, we did it cause we wanted to, we didn't do it to <laughs> sell packs. 
Exactly, exactly. And I'm the same way with, with, with the knives is honestly, I mean, yeah, the background is there and, and the demographic of my, of my customers is there, but you know, these, these are knives that are going forward into the future. And I think that whether that's on the battlefield for somebody or if it's in, you know, Montana on the side of a mountain, you know, wherever that is, you know, that, that quality is, is going to be there. And that, you know, that memory attached to that item is going to be there. No, that makes, that makes total sense. So, well, for shit, man, I should probably go. I've had you on for about an hour. Um, but yeah, I, I appreciate you hopping on. Obviously, thank you for your service, everything you've done for the, the country. So people, you know, hop on uh, Corey's Instagram page. Um, yeah, obviously a veteran. And uh, I'm sure you obviously, you said 21 years, you, you've beat your body up pretty good. So um, yeah, I'm glad you were able to find something you like to do when you got out. That's badass. Yeah. I mean, that's the most that you can, that you can hope for coming out of the, out of the military is, uh, I guess one last bit of advice for, for the crowd is, you know, don't let that military career be your, your own identity, you know, find out who you really are and pursue what you want to do. Don't, don't wait. Don't try to work extra hard to buy the time to do it later. Just go ahead and do it now.